A few times during Jesus' ministry, he quoted from the prophet Isaiah. He said to the people who were listening, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. The world that we live in today has an abundance of information. We have more information you know, in your pocket or in your purse, on your phone. You've got more information available to you than we've ever had in the history of the world. But knowledge is not the same thing as understanding. That's going to be the idea that we talk about today. And I want you to look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come along or come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, this right here, this is why knowledge is not the same thing as understanding. Okay? Let me say that again. Knowledge is not the same thing as understanding. Notice they say, the Lord defeated us today. They did not say the Philistines defeated us today. And they're correct. Their fate in this battle was in the hands of God, not the Philistines. God ordained this loss. And they know it. They get that right. But they obviously don't understand it. They think that the solution is to bring God's ark into battle. Okay, so God defeated them, but maybe if we bring God's thing, He won't defeat us. It doesn't make sense, but why do they think that? It it may have been because they remembered the battle of Jericho. During the battle of Jericho, the ark was central to God's plan of defeating Jericho, Israel won that battle. Maybe they're thinking that. But again, this is, this is clearly knowledge without understanding. Instead of asking God, what should we do? They make up their own plan. Now, can you guess what happens next? Verse 4. So the people went to Shiloh and they brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. 
as soon as the covenant, or as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Now, for a moment, it seems like Israel has made a good decision. The enemy was afraid, even though they've got some terrible theology and they need some history lessons. Um, they are afraid. But instead of running, they turn and fight. Verse 9 says, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. 30,000 dead soldiers... Eli's sons dead, the ark of God captured. So the embarrassing failures continue for Israel. What happened? Well, the short answer, they treated the ark of God like a good luck charm. They thought that bringing the ark would guarantee victory. And instead of doing that, God used their ignorance to fulfill his plans of putting Eli's sons to death. Do you remember that prophecy from two weeks ago? God said, your sons are going to die on the same day. So he uses this foolishness to accomplish that plan. All right, verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? Well, he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. 
There has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, not the sons, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now, in all that story, the word that I want you to notice is the word heavy. And there's a reason. Bear with me. Okay? In Hebrew, the word is kebed. Meaning, and I'm not making this up, okay? It means that Eli was a gloriously fat man. That's what it means. And that sounds really crude, um, but there's a purpose in telling us that Eli was kebed. Okay, so hold that thought. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. She gives birth to Eli's grandson. She names him Ichabod, and then she dies. Now, the name Ichabod or Ichabod is what it actually is, means where is the glory? Kabod is the Hebrew word for glory. And if you're paying attention, it sounds a lot like the word for heavy, kebed. Did you notice that? Okay, do you hear that sound? The irony here is important and it's obvious in Hebrew. The kebed man dies as the kabod leaves Israel. Why is that important? Well, those two words um, in Hebrew almost mean the exact same thing. In ancient times, people expected their king to wear his glory. Okay, The kings wore the heaviest robes and jewelry. They displayed their glory by walking around in heavy vestments. They did that to look big and important. Okay? They looked more important than anyone else in the room always because they were 
the king. 1 Samuel is setting us up, right, for Israel having its first king. That's where we're going. Okay? So the writer is doing something here to prepare us for that, but also to make a statement. The name Ichabod suggests that the glory of Israel has departed. That question, where is the glory? It's gone, right? And that's what she says. I'm naming him Ichabod because God's glory is gone. He's left the building. And it was gone, and this is important, I think, it it was gone long before the ark was captured. The ark was captured because God does not share His glory with anyone else. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says this about false teachers. He says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. That is, if you think about it, that's kind of a perfect description of Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Um, Their end was destruction. Their God was literally their belly. And their glory was their shame. Right? Remember all the stuff we talked about with them stealing the sacrificial meat for themselves and the fat parts for themselves and that they were literally, I mean, that was kind of that's what he keeps talking about in these first few chapters. And it's all setting us up for this idea that their glory was their shame. That the glory belongs to God alone. They abused their position as leaders and God would not tolerate that any longer. Okay, So that's the story, that's the background, that's kind of what's going on in the writing. Now, what does that mean for you and for me? Okay, first, uh, or The first thing I want to do is three lessons for today. The first is this. We need to stop trying to use God to get what we want. Stop trying to use God to get what we want. Okay, Tim Chester, uh, one of the commentators that I was using, um, he, he uses this illustration. I think it's great. He says, we treat God a lot of times like a waiter in a restaurant. Um, and if you've ever been a waiter, you'll appreciate this all the more, right? But when, if you go to a restaurant with your friends... You're sitting with your friends and you're enjoying a meal together and most of the time we just completely ignore the waiter, right? Um, And, you know, they might come check on you and if you don't need anything, it's like, yeah, 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 go away, right? (laughs) We're good. Um, Hopefully you're more polite than that to your waiters, waitresses, but um, you don't really pay attention to the waiter unless you need something, right? Can we order now? Um, Will you bring me some more water? Can I get the check? The waiter doesn't sit with you unless it's TGI Fridays and it's always really weird and that's probably why they went out of business. Um, Forget that, okay, but normally the waiter doesn't come sit with you. Um, You know, not part of your evening. You just call on this person when you need something and... Chester's point is that sometimes we are guilty of treating God like that. 
right? God's not really part of my life. I don't really take Him seriously. I just call on Him when I need something. I just, you know, shoot up a prayer when, when something's not going right or something I want fixed or I kind of not feeling great today. Maybe I'll talk to God kind of thing, right? And so we come to church, we read the Bible, we give a little bit of our time, a little bit of our money, we pray when we need something. And in return, we expect God to perform. To keep us happy. To keep us healthy. To get us into heaven when we die. But all of that is completely backwards. God is not there to serve me. I am here to serve Him. God doesn't owe me anything. He is not in my debt. He is not trying to earn my respect or my love or my commitment. Okay? He's not knocking on the door begging me to come and and do something for Him. He's not sitting in heaven hoping that I notice Him. I really hope Mike thinks about me today when he's making those decisions. I really hope Mike takes a minute and talks to me today. You know, God is not sitting in heaven wringing His hands waiting on us to need Him. You see how foolish that is when you say it out loud, but isn't that how we treat Him? Kind of look at the sum total of your interactions with God over the years. Whether you've been a Christian for a short period of time or a long time, and you look at the way you interact with God, It's like he's a genie. You rub the lamp and, hey God, I need you to fix this. That'd be great. Can you heal my friend? Can you get me some stimulus? You know, whatever it is, right? That's how we treat God. And that's not the God that we worship. It is the God we think we want, a God that answers to us, that's there at our beck and call, right? But it's not the God we have. Doing Christian stuff because we want God's help is like taking the ark into battle expecting victory when God hasn't promised it. Same thing. He doesn't work like that. God is not your good luck charm. That's number one. But second, God does know what He's doing. Because He's God, right? And God can use even our failures to accomplish His plans. And this is the beautiful thing about this story, is that, you know, the idea of God's glory departing Israel, that's really sad, and we should lament that, and it's like, it's, it's difficult to think about what that even means, but His glory departs Israel for a season, not only to punish them, but also to teach them something. 
And that's the beauty of this story. Sometimes before we can learn something new, we have to unlearn something bad. Our brains, this is something that I'm learning and I'm fascinated by um, just the psychology of how this works, but our brains have powerful bias. Once we've learned something, once we believe something to be true about the world and about ourselves, it is very difficult to unlearn it. Which is part of the reason why we have so much conflict in our world between different cultures and different value systems. We see the world differently. We've been taught to see the world differently. It's very difficult to let those things go. And to prove that sort of powerful bias that the brain has, there's this guy um, on YouTube. His name is Destin Sandler. And um, you can look up this video. It's amazing. Um, Kyle told me about it a while back. I think Was it you who told me about this? Yeah, the bicycle. So I, I watched it a while back, but then I remembered it this week and watched it again. He spent eight months teaching himself to ride a backwards bicycle. Okay? The bicycle doesn't go backwards. It, it goes forward just like a normal bicycle. And everything about the bike is normal, except the handlebars have an extra gear. Okay? And what that means is, if you turn the handlebars to the right, the bike goes left. If you turn the handlebars to the left, the bike goes right. Now, everybody in the room is thinking, if you haven't seen this video, you're thinking, that doesn't sound so hard. I could probably do that. Well, guess what? You cannot. <laughs> it took him eight months so technically, maybe you can, but it probably would take you at least eight months, okay, to learn how to ride this bike. As simple as that sounds, it's just not, because your brain learned how to do a bicycle one way, and you spent your whole life doing it. Anytime you've gotten on a bike, you just remember it, right? Once you've learned it, you just know it. You can get back on a bike 20 years from now, it will still work the same way unless it has an extra gear on the handlebars, in which case you will not be able to do it. And so it takes him eight months. Watch the video, it's amazing. At the end of the video, he says this. I learned that knowledge does not equal understanding. And I learned that truth is truth no matter what I think about it. So be careful how you interpret things because you're looking at the world with a bias whether you think you are or not. Pretty powerful if you think about it, right? And I want to suggest to you that Israel was stuck in this pattern of rebellion that we see happening over and over again in the Bible where they, they just default to doing what seemed best to them and they ignored God. And every time they would fall into this pattern, or back into that, into that ditch, God basically took a vacation. Now, not completely, right? Not, not literally. He didn't just like let go of the wheel. But he did take enough of a step back, enough of an exit from his people so that they could unlearn some bad habits and relearn some good things, right? Ralph Davis said it like this, Sometimes God must depart from us 
in order that we may seek Him rightly. Sometimes God departs from us so that we might seek Him rightly. Okay, So what's the lesson that Israel needed to learn? Probably several things you can say, um, but I want to suggest to you that one of them is actually a deep gospel principle that God teaches us in this chapter. And it's a kingdom principle. It's something that Jesus taught His disciples. And it's this. Success in the kingdom of God might look like failure to the world. Israel carried the ark into battle assuming that God would not let them lose because if they lose the battle, it would mean losing the ark. And they assumed God's not going to let that happen because that would bring shame to Him. I mean, this is the symbol of His glory. I mean, God's not going to let the enemy get their hands on this. This is the sure thing, right? We take that with us. God's got our back. Because in their reasoning, losing the ark would damage God's reputation, and so God would never let that happen. But God did the unexpected thing. He let the ark be captured. He did not seem concerned at all with his reputation. Do you see that happening? Even the way the Philistines talk about it, they're scared because they're thinking, a god has come into the camp, right? Surely we're doomed. And you expect them to run because they're thinking the same thing, but for some weird reason, maybe because God didn't want them to run, (laughs) they stayed to fight. And something that appeared shameful for God turned out to be a new beginning. Now, Christians, does anything sound familiar to you? Does it sound a little bit like the cross? Something that appeared shameful to the world, but God used it for a new beginning. Jesus let Himself be captured, tortured, and crucified. But the shame of the cross was a new beginning. What looked like defeat was actually a victory. It was the death of death in the death of Christ. Jesus offered up His Spirit. The sky went dark. The Father turned His back on the Son the glory of the Lord departed the earth for that brief moment, right? All seemed lost. And it was completely unexpected. Though Jesus had been telling His disciples that was what was going to happen, it just went right over their heads. They, ever hearing, never understanding, ever seeing, never perceiving, they were not expecting the cross. They felt defeated. They felt abandoned. They were doubting. 
They're struggling. How could this happen? God let the Son be crucified. Peter would later later preach at Pentecost this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God we crucified and killed. Darkest moment in history, but it was not a failure, it was victory. The ark would not stay in enemy hands for long. We'll see next week exactly how long it was with the enemy. Um, Jesus did not stay in the grave. Death could not hold Him. Right? Listen, we live in a culture today, the world that you live in, the world that you operate in, that you go to school in, that you work in, the way we're raising our kids, we live in a culture driven by performance. Failure is not an option. We are conditioned to seek glory for ourselves, to be noticed, to build our resume, to have um, high marks in whatever it is that we pursue, to make a name for ourselves, to stand out from the crowd. Right? And failure is not an option. And we're conditioned for it in all walks of life. But in the kingdom of God, there's only one person worthy of the glory that we seek, and that is Jesus Christ. And the way He earned it, according to the Bible, is through sacrifice. It didn't look like victory. It didn't look like high performance. It didn't look like power. It was selfless. It was humble. It was loss. And brothers and sisters, God does not promise us most of the things that we think we need. Most of the stuff that we go to God for in prayer, asking Him to fix or to provide, it's not that we should stop asking or that those things aren't important to Him or to you or that some of it you don't need. But that's not what this life is about. For the remainder of your days on this earth in a sinful world, that's not what really matters. What He's offering us is entrance to His kingdom through Jesus Christ. And so our prayer, my prayer for us as a church, for myself is may the God of glory humble us to forsake this world and follow Him. And that's what this table reminds us of this morning as we take it we remember the death of Christ, something that to us looked like defeat. If we were there, if we had witnessed it, we wouldn't have thought of it. You know, We celebrate the cross now as Christians. We think of it as victory. We hang it on the wall. We... We, you know, this, we rejoice over what Jesus did for us. But if you were standing there that day witnessing it, you would have thought about it as an utter failure. Worse than losing the ark in battle. But today we stand forgiven and accepted by the blood and broken body of Jesus for us.
That's what this table represents. And it is a means of grace to us in that it, we receive it by faith that His work is finished, that we're not performing to get it. And it's the same thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's simple. And they all look the same, right? These little cups. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, or how great your life has been, how well you stand out from the crowd. We are united in the same faith, in the same work of Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we come now to the Lord's table, we pray that You would make it a means of grace for us. Set it aside from its common use and help us to receive it in faith. Meet us where we are, Lord Jesus. Um, meet us in our doubts and in our insecurities and in, um, in our hopelessness and remind us once more that we belong to You, that Your work is sufficient for us in our weakness, that Your kingdom and the realities of the spiritual world around us matters so much more than, than what we see. And so may we not be the people who hear but don't understand. We need your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.